Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the BFI Podcast Halloween Special. I'm Henry Barnes, here with Anna Boo Gutzkaya and our guest Michael Meyer-Unser, producer and host of the Evolution of Horror Podcast. Happy Halloween, guys. Happy Halloween. Happy Spooktober. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to spend the most of this episode talking about Halloween, the venerable horror franchise that before indie director David Gordon Green's full-blooded reboot out this Friday was teetering on a knife edge. But before we get stuck in... I wanted to start with a few warm-up questions. Mike, what's the spookiest thing that's ever happened to you, either in the cinema or out? The spookiest thing that happened in the cinema to me, I'm trying to remember what the film was. It was definitely a spooky movie, but somebody passed out in the row in front of me. <laughs> I don't remember the film being scary, though, so I don't think it was anything to do with the film. Probably just having a bit of a bad night. But uh, the lights then all came up, paramedics came in, never got to see the end of whatever that movie was, but that was quite spooky. Anna? I want to say it's when I was watching Heart Candy in the cinema and a guy, there was a particular scene and a guy was so affected by it that he was trying to make his way out of the cinema and passed out in the aisle before he could make it to the exit. (gasps) Two passes. Another Mm -hmm. fainter. Yes. (laughs) I had a guy have a heart attack in a screening I was in once. Oh, Jesus. And that was for Billy Wilder's The Apartment. It was quite heartbreaking at points, that film. There you go. Yeah. Literally broke a heart yeah, that day. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. Anna, what have you discovered since we last talked? Well, I haven't really discovered it since we last recorded, but I wanted to shout it out because it is out in cinemas right now and it's one of the most amazing feature film debuts I've seen this year. And it's a film called Blind Spotting, which is directed by Carlos Lopez Estrada, who is more known for his music video work. And it was written and stars David Diggs of Hamilton Fair and Raphael Casal, who's a poet and a rapper as well. And it's all about two friends living in Oakland. Put him up like this, you guys. I'm a tough guy. I'm a tough guy. Do me a favor. I got three days left on this probation. When you got that gun on you, just don't tell me about it. Plausible deniability. Oh, do you mean this gun? Get out. (laughs) Good night, Colin. Bro. Stop! Stop! Don't you! Don't shoot! Ah!
It's an entirely surprising film, so I definitely suggest seeing it in the cinema and not watching or reading anything about it because it mixes music and um, a sort of an essay on masculinity and male friendship and gentrification and race and police brutality and mixing all of that with sort of rap and poetry and spoken word in the most amazing visual way. And it's one of those films that needs to be sort of supported and seen in the cinema because it's it's not really being talked about that much, but it's extraordinary. So that, that'd be my discovery. I'm sold. Mike, what are you bringing to the table? Uh, I'm sticking with the spooky theme here. I've been binge watching the Haunting of Hill House TV show, which is now on Netflix. I think all 10 episodes dropped at the same time, so you can watch the whole series. And it's wonderful. Obviously, it's based on the Shirley Jackson novel. And we've had a couple of adaptations of it already. There's the Robert Wise film, The Haunting, which is really good. There's the Yander Bont, The Haunting, which is really bad. But this is, I think, the best adaptation of this I've seen. What if I'm so sad? I'm scared of the dark out there that I put poison in me for years and years until my blood turns into poison and my heart breaks right in half and I can't feel anything happy. See, they've changed it a bit. They've stretched it out to 10 hours and they've kind of expanded the mythology of this house and they really take their time with all the characters and it's really good. It's a really slow burn but it's great and it's really scary as well. Excellent. My recommendation this time around is a video game called Read Only Memories, which is set in 2064. It's about artificial intelligence. You get to look after a very cute robot called Turing and it's kind of an adventure point and click thing and it is really great. I recommend you buying a PlayStation and downloading the game and playing it. <laughs> will, will you keep helping me? I need you. Right, on to Halloween, in which director David Gordon Green murders the timeline and chops up the franchise. His retconning of the narrative takes place 40 years after the events of the 1978 original and sees Laurie Strode, played again by Jamie Lee Curtis, sick with paranoia over the return of serial killer Michael Myers. Her daughter and her granddaughter think she's overreacting, but just because you're paranoid doesn't mean the knife-wielding maniac wearing a skin mask isn't after you. We're here to investigate a patient that killed three innocent teenagers on a Halloween in 1978. He was shot by his own psychiatrist and taken into custody that night. And has spent the last 40 years in captivity. Anna, what can you tell us about the history of this franchise? It's been chopped up, sliced up, buried, brought up again. This is something like the 11th film, isn't it? It is, yeah. And this film, in fact, actually sort of rewrites the canon a little bit by effectively negating that the it's not the latest one, but H20 Halloween, which was also the return of Jamie Lee Curtis to her character, Florrie Strode, in which film, spoiler alert, she dies pretty much at the beginning that has effectively been erased from the canon of the halloween franchise and replaced with this one everyone in my family like turns into a nutcase this time of year yeah i mean your grandmother is laurie strode she was almost murdered 
And might I add, is a much better follow-up to her character from the original two films. But Mike, you have done quite a lot of research and work already on your podcast, Evolution of Horror, on the slasher film genre. Yeah. How does Halloween, the franchise, and the original films in particular, which, which were so seminal mm. and influential in many, many ways, how does that sit within the history of slashers? It's really interesting, actually, because it's kind of, you can look at the history of the Halloween genre as the history of the slasher subgenre, really, because you've got the original one from the 1970s, which basically kicked it all off. That's the movie that they were kind of earlier movies but this was the movie that really made the slasher a thing this idea of this guy in a mask killing teenage girls essentially and then if you look at there are so many sequels and it's very confusing there's a lot of like we've explained already like kind of retconning there's a lot of characters die and then they come back to life and certain films ignore certain films that came before it but through the 80s they definitely got a lot schlockier a lot gorier as the first one was very very restrained there wasn't much blood and guts it was more about the suspense um obviously there was this big wave of gory movies in the 80s slashers and so it kind of rode that wave here to kill that little girl and anybody who gets in his way. Oh, God. Who's going to be next? Ah! Then we got to the 90s and we had these kind of postmodern scream type slashers where kids were all very knowing and they talked about horror movies. And, and we had that. We had Halloween H2O which was written by Kevin Williamson, who wrote Scream. So again, it had that very kind of ironic, nudge-nudge, wink-wink kind of vibe to it. I'm not who you think I am. I changed my name when I went into hiding. That's terrible. Take off your clothes. My brother killed my sister. <laughs> How'd he do that? With a really big kitchen knife. And then we had some Rob Zombie remakes in the sort of early 21st century. And again, that was kind of part of that ultra extreme torture porn wave of horror that we were getting at that point. So it fit that sort of mould. He went much more on the gore again and had this kind of almost, you know, Rob Zombie heavy metal vibe or something to it. Behind these eyes, one finds only darkness. These are the eyes of a psychopath. And now we've gone back to basics again, so it's very stripped back. And I think that David Gordon Green with this one is, is trying to go back to what John Carpenter did with the original, which is make Michael Myers scary again, make him this just malevolent shape and rely more on suspense and that kind of thing. So it's come a big full circle. He's waited for this night. He's waited for me. I've waited for him. Get out! Get inside! But it's interesting that Carpenter's original idea for the Halloween franchise was not at all centered around Michael Myers or mm -hmm. Slasher at all. It was supposed to be sort of an anthology series of films where yeah. every film would take place around Halloween time, but be looking at a different scary element. And the only other film in the Halloween franchise that tries to do that and is sort of always forgotten yes. is um, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Yeah, and that's actually a great film. It's yeah, quite fun. Yeah, it really is. Where are they taking her? They're taking her to the factory. Uh, just what I had in mind for you, little buddy. Why, Carcass? Why? Do I need a reason? But I think there's something about this character of Michael Myers mm -hmm. people latched onto absolutely loved. And I think everyone was really disappointed that we got Halloween 3 that had in no way anything to do with Michael Myers. So, yeah, the then next one, Halloween back. 4, the return of Michael Myers and, uh, and so on and so on. But, yeah, I'd really love to see 
this time round, you know, if they're going to relaunch this franchise again, you know, it's made by Blumhouse and they do quite interesting movies. And mm-hmm. I think it would be great if they did a different Halloween movie every year with a completely different story as John Carpenter originally intended. I was just intended. talking about that directly after the, watching the film yeah, last night. I wouldn't think it be great? Blumhouse would be the production company and Jason Blum being the living producer who could actually relaunch that original idea yeah. and make an original Halloween-esque or Halloween-themed movie happen every year. Um, but it's interesting going back to Michael Myers. What do you think uh, captured the imagination so much about him as this sort of faceless, shapeless, voiceless figure that became such a menacing and recurring and, um, you know, in many ways and for many filmmakers, also inspirational figure for a lot of the slasher films that were to come. He's just such a mystery, isn't he? We, we, we learn nothing about him. And I think the problem with the sequels is uh, that they try and explain a lot about the origins of Michael Myers and how he became who he was. And that's not what we want, really. I think, you know, we don't want logic you know i think the, these films don't rely on logic he is just this almost supernatural evil you know a lot of the time that you know you have the characters like the doctor character uh, dr loomis in the original who kind of just describes him as pure evil and this kind of thing and it sounds sort of super campy but i think that is what it is about michael myers he's not a person he's just this thing this shape who can be anywhere and appear at any time how many people did he kill last year have you forgotten but you never looked into his face did you you never saw his eyes you never saw that nothing, no expression, blank. My memory goes back 12 years. I prayed that he would burn in hell. But in my heart, I knew that hell would not have him. And it's interesting that this film makes a thing of that. Like the, mm-hmm. the new Dr. Loomis in this one is constantly saying, just say something. Yes. But I really just want you to, <laughs> yes. to speak or express because you, people are always looking to understand Michael Myers. Exactly. I think there's an element of Slenderman to him as well. In that mm-hmm. He's like the kind of faceless blank that you're always going to be terrified by. Definitely. My favourite part of this film is when they bring in the podcasters, of course, <laughs> who are two uh, quote unquote investigative journalists who are there at the loony bin to try and interview Michael Myers. Yeah. And they kind of very earnestly walk up to this like a painted out square that you're not supposed to cross and try and hold the mask up and get him to talk and express and emote his feelings. And um, how did you feel this one kind of adapted to the modern world? Because I think you're right, it is a kind of zooming back to the 70s version, but it's it's much more, sorry, but much more woke in its yes. like kind of phrasing of women and the way that it's not so much about nudity and teens being dirty grot bags who deserve to die. Um, how do you think this one changed for 2018? Yeah, I think it definitely, you know, they, there's there's references, there's a, there's a moment when one of the kids sort of says, Oh, is it really that big deal that this guy killed a few people 40 years ago? You know, we're over that, aren't we? Like, people don't find that kind of thing scary anymore, do they? And there are a few <laughs> moments like that where they yeah. kind of they kind of flag, like, is this idea now of the slasher a bit dated? And it kind of is, in a way. We don't get a lot of movies like this anymore, kind of mm-hmm. these stalker slasher movies. Can you close the closet door? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But I think they do a really good job. I think the best thing that they do is that they make it, again, they kind of, like you said, they don't rely on kind of punishing dirty teens or kind of relying on that smuttier side I suppose of a lot of slashes again it's just more like an old-fashioned scary ghost story type narrative where you've got people in the dark suspense jump scares you know creepy mannequins creepy masks and so I think it relies on more sort of age-old scares which a lot of movies in 2018 are doing I think and it definitely leans into the legacy of the Halloween franchise as well. Mm. There's a lot of, um, there's quite a substantial amount of fan surface of wings yes. and nods towards the original and a recreation or an homage to scenes from Halloween 1 and 2 that will be, and you know, in the screening that we were at, were definitely appreciated by the fans in the audience. But the thing that really stuck out to me and that I think really updated is the focus on the legacy of a trauma like that. So the teenagers who didn't go through that are obviously a bit flippant and like, um, this doesn't really matter. What does it... Who cares that some guy killed five people 40 years ago? But then you see the effects of that moment on Jamie Lee's character and Laurie Strode and how she passes on that paranoia onto her daughter and her granddaughter and how she's lived and kind of embraced that and lived constantly lives with that paranoia and tries to ready herself for the inevitable return of Michael Myers. She's got an element of Sarah Connor to her from the Terminator franchise, right? It does. Like she's mm-hmm. constantly, like you see loads of shots of her loading guns and target practice and then, I swear there's a pull-up in there somewhere. But, <laughs> yeah. like, trying to prep her family and she's got this amazing prep den in the basement which she's like, built underneath a kitchen counter yeah. so she's ready for Michael whenever he comes. Yeah. I really like that idea that, you know, you can give the character empowerment in a realistic sense as well. Like, she's not completely kick-ass but she is ready for him to return. There's a reason we're supposed to be afraid of this night. I've been preparing for this for a long time. It is not safe to be on the street tonight. Go home! Get out of here! Get inside! Michael! He's here. He is a killer. But he will be killed tonight. Happy Halloween, Michael. I think she did a really good job, Jamie Lee Curtis, actually, because she balances that kind of, she's this older, stronger woman now, obviously 40 years older, but you can still see genuine kind of moments of that's the teenage Laurie Strode that we saw in the first one as well, and her mannerisms. They've given her hair that's more mm-hmm. like the original Laurie as well. Yeah, they have. You know, like we, you, talk, you mentioned earlier, there was, a, there was another one in the 90s, H2O, which had Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode character, and it was a similar thing she was going through. By that point, she was obviously in her, whatever, in her mid-40s, and she was a mum, and she was kind of going through this trauma, but they didn't really play on it. And she was almost this, yeah, completely different character, I suppose, to the one we knew in the original. And I think they've done a much better job this time of kind of channeling the original final girl, the original Laurie Strode. Actually, one of the things that this film kind of um, really, well, not subtly, but it doesn't make a big thing out of it. It does sort of subvert the whole idea of the final girl being 
just the last girl standing because at the end spoiler alert there are three generations of final girls that have all bonded together and um supposedly killed the monster although you know michael myers never dies really and survive in the end and i think there's sort of an homage to the texas chainsaw massacre as well with the last shot where they're in the the back of the pickup truck Mm -hmm. too and it's sort of subtly really interesting because it's three women and one of them is holding a knife and it's such an iconic image as well of kind of the last bloodied screen girl alive yeah. at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Laurie herself at the end of Halloween and Halloween 2. Now it's all of these women surviving together as opposed to them being killed off for whatever reason or whatever kind of the rules of the slasher genre is. If, if a woman in the film is um, sexually active or if she takes drugs or if she's kind of not androgynous or geeky or kind of not acceptably pretty, then she gets murdered off really quickly. Whereas here, they all survive, which was kind of refreshing. Yeah, it was nice. All brandishing their own weapons at the end, if it like as well. It was great. Yeah, yeah. A family of kick-ass women. Yeah, yeah, it was, it. Good. it was good. <laughs> Is it usual for um, the Halloween films to have quite such a mark made on them by the director? Like this really, to me, felt like a David Gordon Green slasher film. He's the director who did George Washington before this and yeah. Pineapple Express. And there's kind of an, always been a slight kitschy, slight, slightly trite thing to his work, but also kind of stoner vibe to it. And it feels like he's definitely bringing it in here. There's a couple of scenes with like two cops talking to each other in a very Tarantino-esque way about banh mi sandwich, which comes out of nowhere. And (laughs) it's in the middle of the climax of the film, as far as I can tell. So it kind of takes that tonal swing into comedy a lot of of the time. Do the other films have this kind of stamp from other directors in that way? I suppose so, although most of the directors of this franchise aren't particularly big names, you know, a lot of the time, especially during the, the, there's a whole sort of middle section of those films that were almost like straight to video type movies I suppose John Carpenter has almost become like this brand now people describe things as being very John Carpenter-esque and they're kind of synthy music and so obviously you know it's a, it's an incredibly John Carpenter film you know the first one but then yeah I think like I said you've got the you've got the Kevin Williamson Dawson's Creek era 90s one which is very much of that school and then yeah you've got Rob Zombie one which has got Rob Zombie stamp all over it you know all of the characters including Michael Myers look like Rob Zombie <laughs> it's uh yeah it's not it's not good <laughs> No, it's not great. And it's interesting because that the Rob Zombie remakes of Halloween effectively tried to tackle the thing that is the least interesting element of the Halloween films, which is try to dig into the psychology and the backstory yeah. of Michael Myers. Nobody wants that. We don't care. Mm-hmm. Take that damn thing off. You are starting to annoy me, boy. I hate you. And I hate you too. You see this? Jesus, I'm gonna break it again on your fucking face. Enough, all right? Can we just eat in peace for once? We do not want to see Michael Myers as a child. <laughs> How do you feel about the uh, portrayal of, of the loonies in the nuthouse? I'm using those phrases which are very un-PC because the film's portrait of it is, for a modern film, yeah. pretty un-PC. We go to this uh, psychiatric hospital where literally everyone is gargling or giggling or gnashing like a dog. And... I don't know. It's weird setting a film in a modern era and allowing it to be a horror film and a comedy and still having those values inherent in it. And I felt a little bit off key to me. I'm not trying to be PC police all the time, but just there was an element of it that didn't really feel in tone with the film when you got to that bit. I agree. I did think it was a bit over the top and and not even necessarily in a sort of politically correct way, but I just thought, oh, it's a little bit too going into sort of camp, I suppose. Yeah, totally. I, I like my Halloween movies to be scary, I suppose. That's the thing. And that was, it, it did go a little bit over the top there at that moment. But I guess... It is a fun, crowd-pleasing, old-fashioned Halloween spooky movie, you know, and I guess in that regard, they do play on some of the age-old tropes. 
Yeah, orange jumpsuits from a psychiatric hospital come into that. Exactly. Very <laughs> important. Very important. There was a bit of a tonal shift in the middle of the film, wasn't there? Because it does yeah. start a bit campy, a bit over the top. Definitely. And dare I say, once the podcasters are killed, it turns a bit more serious. I the podcasters. <laughs> yeah, the podcasters <laughs> ruined it, basically. Yeah, yeah. Once we got rid of them, it was fine. There's an incredible yeah. scene with the podcasters where they go to the grave of Michael Myers' sister and they literally press record on the audio recorder and start narrating the story of her life while squatted on her grave. And <laughs> From that point on, you know that the podcasters are going to meet, meet a sticky end, as they should. Yeah, bastards. they absolutely but, deserve it. I mean, it's all <laughs> their fault, amazing. really. They're the ones who reunite him with his mask. Exactly. And everything. They basically blame the podcasters for all these deaths that happen yeah. in this movie. Oh, speaking of the mask, Anna, you were mentioning earlier about the kind of ageing of Mike Myers and, and the fact that the mask has aged too. I thought that was an interesting point. Why is the mask aged? It is interesting because obviously we one of the key elements of Michael Myers throughout the whole franchise is we actually never see his face and we never hear his voice. So he's this entirely, like you, referred to him before the shape Mm. Um, he's just this menacing figure but we can't humanise him this film continues that we never actually see his face we just see a glimpse of his eye um, which is sort of messed up because Laurie stabbed him in one of the previous films in the eye so we see the scars we see the legacy of all of those experiences on him physically as much as on her but the mask once he's presented with it the mask has been stylistically aged so it looks a bit cracked it's sort of off-white instead of shiny white Um, the hair is a bit darker, whether it's, you know, the original, the iconic Michael Myers mask is like starch white and sort of has bright orange hair on it. And really, that mask would not have aged. It might have gone a bit moldy, but it would not have been cracked and kind of beautifully aged in the same way as he would have as an older man. So I thought that was like a very, very good marketing element. You know, this is an old man, Michael Myers. But actually, the whole point is that even if the man behind the mask ages and we see him, bits of him, like his hands and his beard and his dodgy eye aged and cracked, the mask really shouldn't. That's the thing that sort of defines him and protects him and makes him so scary is that there is nothing. It's a blank mask, doesn't age, doesn't die, no expression. What about you, Mike? Do you miss pristine, implacable Mike Myers? A little bit. The mask famously is William Shatner's face. Um, John Carpenter just cheaply bought this mask that he found in a shop of William Shatner um, <laughs> and cut out the eyes and painted it white, basically. And uh, and that's what we've had. So it's terrifying. William Shatner's face has been terrifying like four generations now. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, but what about the mask? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you know that I pray every night that he would escape? What the hell did you do that for? So I can kill him. So if the 2018 version is podcasters and semi-woke politics, where are we going next with the franchise? What can you see the kind of Halloween of 10 years time being, Anna? I'm going to go out on a limb and I say Laurie becomes the killer. Whoa. Yes, that's what I want to see. That would be woke, wouldn't it? They should have done it before. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It feels like that should have happened already. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I wonder. I mean, I do think it's going to carry. It feels like this is kind of like the Force Awakens of the Halloween. It's kind of going, look, we apologise for all these other... Yeah. ones you've gotten we're going back to the one you loved and it, it was kind of partly rebooting it partly giving the fans a lot of fan service and doing a lot of nods and yeah i guess michael wise is going to be back i feel like we haven't seen the last of him probably it's going to be successful isn't it and i think it's gonna spark a whole new wave of sequels but like we said i'd like to see an anthology series like john carpenter originally intended i'd, I'd prefer to see that i'm a bit tired of michael myers to be honest i mm. just don't think there's anything else you can add to that character really without going into backstory and unnecessary yes. psychology which is what zombie tried to do already and 
did not really succeed. Yeah. I want to see something else. I want to see how other maybe take a Scream-like approach where different characters don the mask and try to continue his work. But his work has no rhyme or reason or meaning. He's just obsessed with it, killing his sister. That's all he cares about. But maybe now that he's got a granddaughter or, you know, a niece and a grandniece, <laughs> um, maybe there's a continuation there and we continue with the trauma of these women and how they deal with it and how they continue to live despite that and how that can follow them around in the same way as Scream did, the Scream franchise. Definitely. Although it's interesting, actually, you said about the niece thing because they got rid of that, didn't they, for this one? They've kind of, there's a moment when they go, oh yeah, isn't Michael Myers Laurie's brother? Wasn't it her brother who murdered all those babysitters? No. It was not her brother. That's something that people made up. They basically erased that from the original uh, mythology that they're no longer brother and sister, which is interesting. So again, she's just this random woman that he's met once and is still targeting 40 years later. I think it makes so much more sense and it's so much more frightening if they're brother and sister, actually. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. That connection made it interesting in a way. Mm. Exactly. And before we go, I want to raise, we got a tweet this episode. This is from Amelie at The Only Cleo Luna. And she said, my film analysis teacher once said that there are two types of horror films. Those where you know more of the character, i.e. the victim, and those where you're put in their shoes. Halloween is the first. You see Michael Myers rising before Jamie Lee does. I don't find that scary. I'm way more frightened by those where you don't know what to expect. I find that quite interesting, the idea that because we see Michael's story, even in the first film, there's a, you see the shot of him as a six-year-old after murdering his sister. Mm-hmm. Despite his implacability, you still have a sense of who he is as a character and, and crucially where that danger is coming from for Jamie Lee Curtis's character. Do you mm-hmm. agree with Emily that that's a problem? Or I don't. I think what Halloween does really well is the it's like the old Hitchcock bomb under the table thing. I think it yeah. sets you up with there is an evil man stood behind you and we know about it and the characters don't. There's just this impending dread throughout the first one, which makes it work so well. So I like it that way round a lot of the time, where we know more than the victims know, I suppose. That's it for this episode. Our thanks to Mike Munzer for joining us. Mike, where can we learn more about you and the Evolution of Horror podcast? Oh, thank you. Uh, you can find the podcast on all the places where you can find most podcasts. So Apple, iTunes, all the usual places. Or you can just find us on Twitter at EvolutionPod. That's great. And another reminder to check out producer Pete's other podcast, Dead Man Talking. That's a real life serial killer story. You can contact us on Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes and Anna's on Anna B. Demented. Our producer is Peter Sale. More of Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Our last line this time is from John Carpenter's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. Boo! There's yours. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.